There are people in a cave. They have been there since childhood. They are chained up. All they can see is the wall of the cave. Behind them burns a fire. Between the fire and the prisoners, there is a parapet along which puppeteers can walk. The puppeteers who are behind the prisoners hold up puppets that cast shadows on the wall of the cave. The prisoners are unable to see these puppets, the real objects that pass behind them. What the prisoners see and hear are shadows and echoes cast by these objects that they do not see. One prisoner manages to free himself. He turns around to see the fire and puppeteers and the objects casting the shadows. This terrifies him, and in his fear and pain, he is tempted to sit back down, put the chains back on, and keep watching the shadows. But he sees a faint light at the back of the cave, a potential, a hope, and despite his fear, he feels compelled to follow it. He heads towards the light. The light is blinding, painful, disorienting. He is suffering, but he pushes onward. As he climbs, his eyes adjust to the light. It's still painful, but he's able to handle more and more as he adjusts. He continues to follow it, traveling up and up through the cave, the light getting brighter and brighter until finally he emerges into broad daylight. Finally outdoors, he sees a whole new world he was previously unaware of, the real world. It is full of beauty and life and wonder and meaning. He realizes that he has been a prisoner all of his life, but now he is free. Overjoyed by his discovery, the man returns into the cave to free the others. He finds them in the place he used to sit, shackled to the floor, watching the shadows. And he shouts, Wake up, wake up. You're living in an illusion. Follow me and I will show you the truth. I will set you free. But the prisoners are startled by his shouting. They cover their ears. He motions towards the entrance, but they shudder at the light as they turn their heads to look. He kneels down to undo their chains, but they push him away. Wake up, wake up, he keeps shouting, tugging and pulling on their arms, desperately trying to get them to stand up and leave, but they do not wish to be disturbed. The prisoners become so agitated by the man that together they turn on him. They strangle him with their chains and toss his corpse aside. With that disturbance finally over, they sit back down and return to watching the shadows. Plato's Cave is an allegory presented by the Greek philosopher Plato in his work, Republic. Plato was an Athenian philosopher during the classical period in ancient Greece he was alive around 400 BC. He was the founder of Platonism and the Academy, which was the first institution 
of higher learning in the Western world. Plato is widely considered to be one of the most important and most influential individuals in human history, uh, thought of as being one of the pillars of the West in general. And we're exploring his famous allegory of the cave because we feel like it relates to shadow quite a bit. It's a, it's a good myth, a sort of universal myth, this archetypal pattern of being immersed in shadow, which all of us are, and the journey to confronting that shadow, shining a light on it, and journeying further and further into the light. And that's in some ways what shadow work is. Yeah, so we'll look at the allegory first and foremost from this mythological lens, because it's really full of all of this really potent imagery and symbolism that can be broken down, you know, just starting with the cave. Um, I think there's this nature of moving into the cave that represents like this expression of introversion, the going inward, the incubation. It's like a regression and a withdrawal. And so there's already this feeling of being cut off. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the animal world, that's for a reason. But the idea is you go in and then you go out and you go in and you go out. But here we see that people are sort of trapped. And I think in at least some versions that you read, it's like people are born in the cave. So they don't even know that there's some other kind of world outside of this space. For sure. So you're yeah. so, you're still sort of stuck in the like the... Uh, the unconscious you're still in the arms of like the great mother in the earth and you haven't really left that womb and so there's this identification that kind of keeps you stuck and hasn't fully allowed this expression of consciousness to really take form right so the journeying from the darkness into the light it can be interpreted in a lot of ways again this is like a very archetypal story that resonates with humans in multiple ways there's the human evolutionary history which is that humans were unconscious well before they were humans and then they had this journey of becoming conscious over time uh apes at some point became conscious and they were confronted with the terror of seeing confronted with the the light of consciousness and this would have resulted in you know, for the first time confronting your own existence, for the first time saying, I am, um, for the first time being confronted with your mortality, which is mm. if I exist now, I won't always exist. Yeah. And, you know, an ape seeing a, another dead ape and saying, it's dead. Is that going to be me eventually? Yeah. So that's a journey of human history of from darkness into light mm. that very much has to do with the journey of consciousness that's continued throughout human history. You would say that in some ways, not in all ways, but in some ways that the light is shining brighter than ever at this state in human history. Cause we all know so much. I'll say no in quotes because a lot of us might know a lot of really useless information, but <laughs> don't have much wisdom. So it's hard to say, do we know more than people in the past did? Yeah. But in as some ways, like yes. that light shines so brightly it casts like an even greater shadow. Right. So I think that's like what we're dealing with. That's like the polarization of like so much technology, so much development, so much wisdom, and also so much shadow. 
Right. That's both involved with the nature of the wisdom and the technology, but also where how it's left us handicapped. So we have to walk this really delicate balance of like the more that we kind of rise into consciousness, what's being left behind. Mm -hmm. Or if we continue to stay in the cave on some things, what are we um, preventing ourselves from gaining? And the symbol of the sun, of course, is often associated with like enlightenment or wisdom or knowledge, power. Um, You look at gods like Apollo or Ra or even Horus, um, this feeling that the light brings this sense of dynamic power and wisdom. And it's something that's incredibly uh, life-sustaining, yet at the same time can be very overpowering. It's something, you know, that that feeling when you like have had your eyes closed and then you kind of open them and you're like blinded by the sun. Mm -hmm. It's like if we're not adjusted to that, there's a feeling that you're almost as disoriented in the sun as you are in the darkness. So you you have to have the, those moments of tempering yourself in this new environment. So the wisdom can feel just like as hot, just as beating down on you, just as oppressive as the chains, but in a different way. Right. Um, the journey of human history from darkness to light is one journey. There's also just the individual journey that happens with each individual which Mm -hmm. is the journey from being born to being an adult Mm -hmm. and we're not really conscious when we're born most people don't really remember much until they're at least like a year old two years old Mm -hmm. um and even then it's like how conscious are you it's like not very conscious you don't really understand things very well so there is this journey from childhood to adulthood that involves coming from the womb of the mother, the arms of the mother who keeps you safe, Mm. um, before you're even conscious. Uh, and you know, the womb is like the cave, like you're journeying out of the cave, you're journeying out of the womb and, um, the archetype of the father comes in and sort of pulls the child into consciousness. You leave the arms of the mother and you are go out into the world with the father and he, you know, pushes you and toughens you up and tells you like, you have to understand things. You need to know things you need to become, you need to become. And that's, becoming conscious. And so there's that journey too, that we all go through the journey to the light, um, which is just part of growing up. Mm. So the chains I think are another big symbol in the allegory. Mm-hmm. I think when I was reflecting on this, uh, like the, the devil tarot card came to mind Yeah, and that like really strong imagery of being tethered to something that is both seemingly internal and external at the same time because there is often when we're dealing with the tarot card like this internal nature or some sort of pattern of of behavior that's being perpetuated yeah yet at the same time there's like an external environment that's like giving life to it and it can be really really easy to be like well this is happening because of this it's that person it's this job it's my boss yada 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 but really there's like in some ways we choose to be chained and the Rider weight version of this card, I guess many like tarot um, <laughs> detour is that yeah. the chains are loose around their necks. So there's a really interesting challenge of like this illusion of being chained. And mm-hmm. actually if we're willing to kind of have these moments of lucidity, we, we can escape. And in the allegory, the individual does for some reason, they kind of wake up and realize like something's going on here. They become loose. They kind of see, you know, the strange environment and then they decide to push forward. And that to me is, it encapsulates what happens in the devil card as well. Right. Um, the devil card saying that you are, you're chained to things that you cannot see. Mm. You're chained to your vices. Yeah. 
You don't realize how much your shadow is dragging you down. You don't realize how much your trauma, for instance, from your childhood is actually preventing you from living the life you want to live. Maybe it's preventing you from having the relationships you want to have or from having the security to work a job that pays enough for you to raise a family. There's all these ways in which we're being held back by things that we cannot see. Mm. Um, And we have chains around us that uh, we often don't want to see. Mm. Um, And so the allegory is definitely point into this even when the um the prisoners are being offered freedom they refuse because like, they, look at these chains do yeah. you realize that yeah they, they don't understand what freedom means mm. all they know is that it scares them and yeah. like they're they're surviving where they are and yeah. like why would they risk changing mm. where they're content mm-hmm. yeah i think there is this heaviness to the chains but that as much as we see the heaviness and how it weighs you down there's also this aspect of the symbolism of the chain that like links you and there's kind of like this passage through time like i'm linked to this person through this lineage i'm linked to them through this knowledge that's been passed down and passed down so there's this like dynamic connection and unfolding and in the allegory you know they're born in the cave this is all they've ever known this has been passed down to them and sometimes it's really hard to break out of these almost like karmic shackles or the structures that have been built around you because it's all you've ever known. It's what I, what you identify as. It's maybe what even um, gives your life meaning. And to have to tear that down and rebuild it is something that can be extremely terrifying. So what's some other uh, mythology that explores the cave as a symbol? Yeah, I came upon a really interesting Japanese myth about the sun goddess Amaterasu and how... And this long story, ultimately, is one part where she's insulted and she withdraws into a cave and she takes all the light of like the world with her and then everything's plunged into darkness. So we're seeing this interesting regression, um, you know, and in this case, the sun goddess is is purposefully choosing to go into the cave. But what I found most interesting was that the god of wisdom he kind of led the other kind of pantheon gods um, to help get her out. So it's it's like the, that embodiment, that personification of philosophy, of wisdom, of knowledge, of trying to kind of pierce deeper into reality um, that made the plan. And so what they do is they like make all this noise outside of the cave, and she gets she becomes curious. So she decides to you know open the rock, and as she does so. They put a mirror in front of her and her brilliance shines back and she sees all of this beauty and she decides to come out. So it's a bit of a different story, but there's some similarity here. And I think especially when we get to some of the heart of what Plato's Cave is talking about and what it means to leave, like what's the driving force that's leading you? It's like, it's the journey towards higher consciousness. It's the the love of wisdom of knowing reality and and truly kind of challenging so the the, the goddess the cave wisdom uh the sun it's all there in the japanese myth too so some history behind the allegory of plato's cave why did he write this mm. what, what was the inspiration for plato's cave and if you have studied plato or read about plato one of the, uh, you know, biggest patterns in his work is writing about Socrates, mm-hmm. his teacher. And Socrates is a really interesting figure because 
Socrates didn't write anything, or if he did, it wasn't uh, maintained or didn't survive until modern times. And a lot of the stuff we know about Socrates is just purely through Plato's writings mm. describing Socrates. And so uh, Socrates is this really weird character. He, he's almost interpreted as like the Homer Simpson of philosophy, where it's like he seems like to be like pretty like wacky and kind of is depicted as being like bald and kind of rotund. Um, and all these stories about Socrates that Plato wrote, it's like, like did this actually happen? Like, yeah. was he even real? And like, of course he was real. There's other, you know, records that show that he was real. But Socrates is just a collection of stories, mm. according to Plato. And uh, Socrates was a figure that was very controversial in his time. Mm. And he was sort of called like the gadfly, mm-hmm. as in the little thing that would go around and poke you to like get you to move. <laughs> and so he had kind of this sort of like antagonistic, very aggressive form of doing his philosophy. Mm. Um, and one of those methods he employed was like the Socratic method or um, uh, Elenchus, I believe it was called, of having a conversation with someone and just asking them questions, questions, questions about yeah. their propositions. And so they, people would make propositions about, you know, uh, it is, it's good to have many children. And he would say, why is it good? Mm. And the person would say, well, children can have more children. And he would say, well, why is that good? And they might say, well, uh, because it's good for the world or something like they wouldn't know. And they would mm-hmm. get to the state of aporia, mm. um, where they don't know what they're doing anymore. And yeah. they, they don't even know what they believe anymore. And Socrates had this kind of personality and he could, uh, humiliate people this way. And, um, a lot of the people in power in Athens were people who started to feel kind of humiliated by Socrates mm. or they felt like he was criticizing them. Yeah. Um, he was, uh, getting the youth all excited and, um, he was sort of like a revolutionary shaking sort of things up. He was shaking Socrates. things up. Right. <laughs> and what Socrates is doing, um, is he's shining light, yeah. right? He's trying to get people to wake up. He's, he's the gadfly that says, wake up, mm. uh, examine the way that you think and see the flaws in it. Mm. Realize that you are sort of living a shackled life. Yeah. Realize that you are not free. Realize that, you know, maybe the political forces in Athens are sort of controlling you and it's time to wake up. Um, so Socrates is very much uh, the prisoner who has escaped the cave mm. in mm-hmm. Plato's eyes. Yeah, yeah. He's freed himself. Um, he's somehow made it through this philosophical, um, maze out into the real world Mm. where Socrates can actually see he's out in the sun and the light is shining and Socrates sees the truth. He sees all the illusions, all the shadows around him and he, he sees that they are shadows. Um, but when Socrates tries to tell people this when he retreats into the cave, when he goes back down to the other prisoners and tries to say, look, you're living in an illusion. You're in a dream world. You don't see the truth. Um, the prisoners in the cave, they turn on Socrates. Yeah. And so Socrates was, uh, arrested. He was put on trial and he was very, um, I don't want to say flippant, at the trial, but he wasn't very cooperative. Didn't he say something like, Oh, you should just like pay for my food or like, yeah. you know, like, like what punishment do you yeah, think what you punishment deserve? Do you, deserve? Um, <laughs> you know, he's, he's being tried. He's, he's being tried for, uh, 
agitating the youth and getting mm. them all excited and getting yeah. them all like revolutionary. He was also accused of blasphemy because mm. he would not uh, uphold the gods of the state. Sure. Um, yeah. Not that Socrates was like uh, an atheist or anything like that, but it just he, he wouldn't play along exactly with the uh, the sort of the uh, the religion of the state mm. the way they wanted him to. Yeah. Um, and yes, they said like, okay, so how should you be punished? And he says, well, you should give me free meals for the rest of my life in a nice place to live because I think I deserve it. <laughs> yeah. And they didn't like this, right? <laughs> and so uh, even in a moment of being tried, possibly, uh, you know, he might be executed for this. Mm -hmm. He won't relent. Yeah. He embodies philosophy. He is a philosopher and he says, I'm not going to go back on what I yeah. believe to be true. Um, and so they have him executed. Yeah. And the way they have him executed is they, they give him uh, a cup of hemlock yeah. Uh, poison mm. and he drinks it and he walks around until he collapses yeah anyways so that's the death of socrates and plato admired socrates so much that this devastated him yeah he didn't understand what had happened mm. he didn't understand why the city of athens the city that plato believed in so firmly the city that he loved it was like the city of wisdom right like right. the city of philosophy being yeah. born where yeah. it's like these these ideas should be held up and celebrated yeah and here was socrates doing that in action yeah not in a theoretical way not just like you know lecturing right. you know right very practical action. very practical creating changes creating changes see the light yeah and, and he's executed for it yeah and he's executed for it and i i find it interesting also that often like modern um sort of expressions of the therapeutic process are said to be sort of born from the socratic method mm. like we keep kind of inquiring more deeply into this person's proposition you know yeah. i am this way and it's like well why is that and it's yeah. it's kind of gentle but at the same time it, it helps somebody arrive at a new conclusion without just telling them outright so right. we can see how monumentally important these ideas are to our well-being but also mm -hmm. to our culture yeah and he was executed for it right so socrates is the freed man who goes back into the cave mm -hmm. and tries to wake people up yeah and they murder him for it and so plato does he's not sure what to make of this what what is this strange paradox where someone who is so beautiful and good and heroic mm-hmm how can that person be killed for that? Right, right. What is what does that mean for the world? I mean, like, what's going to make you more cynical? Mm. You know, is when someone that you think is like the best person, yeah, is killed for mm. doing good things. You have to think, well, there's something's wrong with the world. Yeah, something's wrong with Athens. Yeah, or maybe there's something deeper than that. Maybe this is just human nature. Yeah, maybe this is just the way that humans respond to the truth. Yeah. And it says a lot about Plato because, I don't know, from, from my very shallow understanding, this seemed like something that was incredibly devastating mm -hmm. because not only was he very dedicated to Athens and being an Athenian, but also to Socrates. So to have something so uh, devastating happen, like the death of the teacher, it's like you could have gone a lot of ways with this, mm -hmm. but instead it's like he sort of doubles down on the path of wisdom. Yeah. And he continues despite knowing that if he does that, maybe he could end up in a similar situation. But instead, like Socrates becomes this sort of guiding figure through his work. And the allegory becomes a way to understand, as you said, human nature. Right. So the pattern that this is touching upon that I think is so important 
to examine is this idea of shadow integration, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, you know, shadow integration, shadow work can be interpreted in all kinds of ways. I mean, you could say that any form of self-help is a form of shadow integration, really. And I think that's, you know, fairly accurate. Um, but we find that the, the light of truth is blinding to us. Mm. We don't want to change our narrative when we have a story about what my life is, where I'm going and why it's very important that that narrative stays coherent, right? That's oh, what yeah. the ego <laughs> is doing this all the time. It's trying to write a coherent narrative. Yeah. Yeah. It has a mythological function of like, what's my story? Where did I come from? Where am I going? Mm. And it wants that to stay coherent. Mm. And when it's faced with an incoherency, sure. which is like some sort of fact that says, guess what? Your life is a lie. Guess what? Your wife has been cheating on you for the last 10 years. Yeah. Uh, guess what? Um, you know, your best friend stabbed you in the back. Yeah, yeah. Guess what? This job that you've dedicated your life to, you just got fired. Yeah. And so the narrative crumbles right and people freak out yeah. at that they don't want to change the story right. they don't know what to do their entire life falls in yeah. the chaos the change needs to be gradual or if it's sudden you've got to have to have like the right faculties about you and mm-hmm. i think this i'm getting like flashbacks to our personal myth episode because we talk a lot about this sure the need of the narrative mm-hmm. and when that crumbles when it breaks down it can cause this real sense of panic so as an individual kind of comes back into the cave wanting to shine light, yeah. you're ultimately saying, look at the way all of this has been an illusion and what happens. People retaliate. Mm-hmm. There can be this in- extremely intense response to it. Right. So even, even you know, basic things, like those, those are like devastating things to find out about your life. Those mm-hmm. are devastating things that really destroy your narrative. But even, even small things, you know... Um, you try to tell one of your friends, like, hey, you know, I think you might have, like, a drinking problem. I feel like, a, like I'm, I'm observing you drink a little too often and a little too much. Most people will respond to that, like, excuse me? I don't like, have a problem. <laughs> either I don't have a problem, which is, like, again, maintain the narrative. Yeah. I'm, I don't have a problem. Yeah. But it's also just, like, how dare you judge me? Right, right. Or, like, it seems like when someone's kind of pushing back, you get really defensive and your tone kind of changes. Right. And, like... And they're like, no, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> How dare you say that? Right. I'm always open to conversation. Right. Or it seems like, you know, it seems like you kind of like have a grudge against like my girlfriend. Right. And it's like, yeah, yeah. no, I don't hold grudges <laughs> against people. I'm nice to everyone. I'm completely accepting towards everyone. Mm. And people don't want to hear things like, oh, you know, guess what? It turns out, you know, you're kind of a bad person. It's like anything that sounds like that, there's a kind of rejection, like Mm. does not compute. And that is part of the difficulty of this notion of truth. Truth is slippery. It's not very easy to assert what truth actually is at any given moment. Um, Not to say that truth is all relative. There definitely is, I would say, a kind of notion of objective truth. But... All that being said, um, the truth is hard to hear. Mm. The truth hurts, yeah. right? Ignorance is bliss, right? And <laughs> yeah, so this yeah. is, um, we see it in our lives. Um, if you try to go around telling people the truth all the time, mm. I'd say more power to you. That's great. Yeah. I think that's an important thing for people to kind of strive towards. But you'll find that a lot of people won't like you very much mm. if you are constantly 
saying whatever is on your mind, if you're being totally honest all the time, if you point out something that doesn't seem like it's like proper, like someone's behavior, someone's relationship, the way they're raising their child, if you point those things out like loudly, people don't like that. Right. Well, sometimes it can feel like you lack like the social nuance or it's not being delivered very well. Mm -hmm. And I think other times it's just like, well, we all know that, but we don't talk about it, you know? So there's like this really fine line that you have to dance around between Mm -hmm. being able to sense these things, know that maybe there needs to be some sort of discussion around it, but also being able to deliver it in a way that can hopefully be received and sometimes I think people exist on one side of that spectrum where it's like, oh, okay, like, you know, you, you need to tone it down a little bit, you know, right. or you need to know like that when the timing's right, let's not do this in front of all of our extended family right now, mm-hmm. Joe, like not now let's do it. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's, it's tricky. Right. Right. So that's like the, the, the social dynamics of shadow are very interesting in this way. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. Poito is getting into that. I, th- I think Poito is kind of pointing more towards sort of like a societal, like yes, certainly political yes. shadow of, you know, how the political body will purge uh, anyone who speaks against it, yeah. even if it's the truth. Um, but this is true even on a, on a personal level, just in your own life. Mm-hmm. It's what shadow work is. Right. Yeah. So there is something inside of us that we've repressed or denied or we just haven't explored yet. Maybe it's good. Maybe it's bad. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's trauma that we don't want to revisit. Bad yeah, memories. I mean, when, when someone tells you how amazing you are mm-hmm. and you just like deny that and, yeah. and there's like just feeling of like, no, 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 that's me. In fact, like, because then you have to admit to yourself, I am good. I am worthy. I am fantastic. I can get that thing I want. Mm-hmm. That is just as threatening as saying like, hey, you have an anger problem. Yeah. Right. I mean, you, you could you could tell someone like, you are capable of raising a family. Mm-hmm. You can meet someone and get married and have children. Yeah. That's kind of a shadow thing because yeah. they want to say, well, I don't think I can. And if I maintain that I can't, I have no responsibility to do so. Yeah. If I believe that I can do that, Okay, now I have the responsibility to go do it. Now you have to move into that environment of fear and yeah. uncertainty. But that's like where that's where the transformation happens, right? And right. that's the trick. Right. So there's there's golden shadow, there's there's potential right, in the shadow. Right. Like you could become something greater than you are. Mm. But definitely with, with the sort of negative stuff, it's definitely the light shines and it mm. might just be you looking in the mirror. It could just be you writing a journal entry Mm. and you examine your journal entry and you say, this sounds like someone who is horribly depressed and like you're revealing light to yourself. You're shining light on yourself because externalization does that Mm. and that can be tough. Yeah. What do you do with that? Yeah. If you realize that you're horribly depressed, that's not a good thing to find out. Yeah. And it's scary and you could say, well, shit, I have to like go do something about this. I have to admit to myself that my life is not going well, which yeah. is a really scary thing to admit. Yeah. Or, you know what? I can just like throw this journal entry away and I can like go get drunk, mm-hmm. you know? And that's people usually do the latter yeah. more than they do the former. Yeah. Yeah. What are some other examples that we can look at to really see the allegory at play? You mean like pop culture examples? Yeah. Right. So this is like a universal story, right? And we can see it, um, in all these different places, I, th- I think a lot of, I mean, well, there's just like the, like the hero's journey, which is like this, this battle between like the darkness and the light, mm-hmm. right? It's so like Sauron is like 
the Lord of Darkness. Mm-hmm. And then like, you know, Aragorn is sort of like the warrior of light. And it's like, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Like the symbolism of light and dark is already like deeply embedded in, yeah. in our psyche. And, and it's not just an allegory for the world of like, you know, being a good person prevails. It's also just like inside yourself that like this evil darkness inside of you is something that you can uh, engage with mm. and integrate. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the most obvious modern myths that um, I wouldn't even say it explores Plato's cave, like it is Plato's cave uh, is the matrix. Mm. And if you've seen the matrix, it's essentially the story that I read out at the beginning of the podcast episode. Mm. Uh, Neo is imprisoned in a dream world, a world of shadows, um, a world of illusions. He's sort of shackled to his life and he begins to break free of that. He sees a light. He sees some glimpse of something that's going to tell him the truth. Mm, Follow the white bunny, right? Right. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, he's searching for Morpheus on the internet, which means like he has some sort of suspicion that there's Mm. something he needs to find out. He's not sure what it is. So he's the prisoner and he kind of breaks free and he starts running up this tunnel towards the light. And um, it's terrifying and he wants to turn back. He has all these moments of refusing the call. Mm where he says, I can't do this. And, you know, he goes back to his apartment um, or he's going to step out of the car when Trinity, you know, is taken to see Morpheus, but he gets back in the car. Uh, It's painful. It's scary. But um, he ultimately wakes up from the dream world. He exits the matrix and he emerges into the real world. Mm. Um, But the, the matrix goes beyond that. I mean, it follows that allegory even more closely where it's like, Neo doesn't just stay in the real world. He now has to travel back into the cave, Mm. back into the darkness, and he needs to go free more of the prisoners. And doing that is incredibly dangerous. And people travel back into the Matrix to free more prisoners, and they're killed frequently. Mm. Yeah. And there's also the way in which the actual structure of uh, the sort of, like, keepers of the Matrix, I don't know how you want to say it, but, like, they're also trying to kill him. Not only is there, like... It's like the programming says, like, if something doesn't fit here, it needs to be extinguished. And so you see um, the agents going after him. And the liberation is something that's ultimately, like, a very, very dangerous task. And that happens internally as well, the parts of you that are going to fight against it. But externally, in, in your real-world environment, you'll have that same type of pushback. Right. And at the societal level, if we're getting to like collective shadow, we can see the same pattern, right? Mm. Is that the, the system um, fights back yeah. against anything that shakes it up or anything that's going to change the system. And mm. this is almost like a natural process, right? Mm. It's not even so much that there's individual people within society or within a government uh, that are doing this purging um, pattern of like where, when light emerges or when like, sorry, when the shadow emerges in the collective, what does everyone do when it comes out to the light? Right. What does the system do? The system usually forces it back down. That's true for the individual system. That's true for like our bodies. Is mm. that when shadow emerges, we want to push it back down yeah. and, and suppress it again and say, yeah. whoops, that got out for a second. Sorry, you had to see that, but it's, <laughs> it's gone now. Don't worry about that again. Um, the same is true in society. And, um, 
we've seen this pattern with, um, you know, Socrates. Yeah. It's a real person. We assume that that really happened. Um, there's sort of the Christ archetype. Um, the myth of Christ is almost surely an embellishment with all the stories of Christ, but it's based on a real person. That real person of Jesus can be verified by historical records that were created by like Roman historians at the time. Um, but you know, Christ was someone who spoke the truth. Mm. Christ was someone like Socrates. Yeah. Um, and for speaking the truth, uh, and rallying sort of the masses to him, like shaking things up. Um, he was sort of a threat to the system. Mm. Christ was viewed as a troublemaker and that's why Christ was put to death. And so the, the Christ story is, is interestingly very similar to the Socrates story yeah. as, as someone who is the best possible person, like the, the hero of your life, your mm. idol, Plato's idol was Socrates. He yeah. was such a hero and, and Socrates was killed for being right. a hero. Yeah. Christ um, was also viewed as this wonderful person who spoke the truth and he was killed for speaking the truth. Yeah. And what the hell is that? Mm. What does that mean? Yeah. What does that mean when like the most heroic person, the most beautiful person, the person who speaks the truth is murdered specifically for that? Yeah. Yeah. I think when we were talking about this, like MLK is what came to mind for me. Yeah. yeah. And it's like this idea about some sort of force, like a force of good, mm. a force that wants to bring some balance back to the dynamic yeah. is seen as a threat. Mm. And is ultimately then taken out in this case, like assassinated. But we see these types of assassinations throughout our history, yeah. as far back as Jesus or Socrates. I guess it's not necessarily an assassination with Christ. Like he was sort of paraded around and almost like made a, a figure, of, yeah, an example yeah, of yeah. in that case. And sometimes that is what happens. Yeah. Like you well, become. Well, okay. It was also he was. They were making an example. That's true. It's That's like, true. Don't anyone else try to fight for a civil rights? Right. Like, or you'll get shot too. Yeah. I mean, Robert Kennedy was shot also, yeah, yeah. and he was like a big pro of civil rights, although his assassination was sort of by someone who seemed to be crazy. Yeah. But still, there's this pattern of there are people who are trying to actually do good things for the world, and they're trying to touch upon a truth that is a powerful truth mm. that is going to um, change things for the better. Yeah. But the system doesn't perceive it that way. Right. And it... Instead, it just says, like, well, you're trying to force me to change or adapt, and I don't want to do that. Mm. That's too inconvenient for me. Yeah. And so the pattern is to purge. Yeah, yeah. Right? And yeah. so Socrates is purged. Right. Jesus was purged. Um, when shadow is revealed in our lives, we purge it. Yeah. If we're in a relationship with someone and something comes up that is, like, serious shadow, yeah. like, wow, we have, like, a big problem. We have a big miscommunication here. We're not talking about something that we need to talk about. Mm. Our instinct is often to not actually get into it and try to unpack it and reveal it. Our response is often to just deny it, mm. purge it. Yeah. That doesn't exist. Yeah. There is no problem. Yeah. You know, waving your hand. I'm waving my hand to a whistle right now. <laughs> you don't see this on the podcast. But the motion of saying there is <laughs> a no Jedi problem. mind the trick. The Jedi mind trick. Right. <laughs> but we do that. Yeah, I mean we do it to ourselves, we do it to others. If um, only it was that easy only actually had real <laughs> magic powers you know talking about this i wonder you know ultimately at the core here like what is 
There's the takeaway, right, of just like the nature of this, the purge. But I think there's also the optimist in me that's saying like there's also like a path forward, even if one individual is purged Mm -hmm. in some ways, that movement or that shakeup still brings some sort of movement. But, you know, Socrates compared to Plato, I think seeing as him as Plato, that is like as one of these titans of philosophical thought who was able to carry Socrates' teachings into the future shows that something persists. And maybe it persists in a different way, not in so much the antagonistic sort of poking gadfly sort of way Mm -hmm. where you're being forced and forced to face the shadow over and over again, but something persists. And it's, I don't know, I'm curious of what you think ultimately kind of rises out of this allegory. Like what is it that allows that, that light of consciousness to continue to kind of knock on the door of the cave and beckon people out. What allows people to move out of the darkness and into the light? Um, it's hard to say. It's hard. It's hard to say why certain individuals take on the Socrates archetype. Mm. You might say, yeah, yeah. I don't think it's as simple just to say like, well, that's like that's what philosophers do. Because it's like, well, there's a lot of so-called philosophers out there that I don't think are really truly pursuing wisdom Mm. or truth, but they might be kind of more like scholars of philosophy or they might just know a lot of information. Yeah. Um, there's something that's more spiritual and heroic about the path of, let's say the prisoner who's freed from the cave. Um, what, you know, what stimulates someone to take that path? Yeah. Because, because you have to really, you have to think that figuring out what is real, quote unquote real, is actually more important than a lot of other things Mm. in your life. Like almost like more important than like your basic needs. Like some people actually are more interested in reality than they are in, uh, being able to feed themselves. Yeah. And so they'll be poor. Mm. They'll pursue uh, philosophy or they'll p- pursue art, which I think mm. is a different form of philosophy. Um, they'll pers- pursue this path of what they think is the truth and mm. they'll do so, um, regardless of how their life starts to go. Maybe they'll, they'll lose friends. Mm. Uh, maybe they won't be very attractive to the opposite sex. Um, maybe they will be viewed as a bad person. I think that's a, a frequent pattern is someone who's really interested in sort of shining that light of truth uh, is viewed as sort of this evil entity that mm. needs to be suppressed. Yeah. Um, so there has to be some sort of deep spark inside of you. I think that really, um, forces you to just believe that this is, this is important. Mm. It's important to pursue this like shadow integration. Um, and I don't know, it's not a very fun path. I think for most people, which is yeah. why they don't take it. Yeah. Um, and you know, for people who are exploring shadow work, you know, this is something that you come to realize is that you can't just fully integrate the shadow. You can't fully speak the truth all the time. Mm. As we were talking about with like social relationships, you can't simply, uh, shine light in people's eyes all the time. Like truth, like in the face, like here's like some like mad truth bombs, like all the time. It doesn't really work very well. Mm -hmm. And there is sort of like this minimum viable shadow Mm. that, 
is required for relationships to work. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Not every relationship can talk it, talk it out right. like, about everything, yeah. like all the truth on the table right now. Right. Like you can't do that with like the person who's like checking you out at the grocery store, right. you know, like we need to like figure out like what's like true between us. It's like, no, you're never going to see this person again. So it doesn't matter. Well, I think there's also just like the recognition that like a shadow is never fully integrated. Shadow is never fully gone from this world because then we would lose that kind of balance of the tension of opposites. So just as we don't want to live in a pure world of light and consciousness and love and only good stuff. It's like, no, it's like we need with the light, with the dark, mm -hmm. we need to be in the cave sometimes and then we need to come out of the cave you know we need to challenge ourselves and go inward into the parts of ourselves that feel scary and intimidating yeah and then we need to bring that content back out but it's it's just the eternal dance between them and i think when we go off base is when we, we become one-sided in one side or the other and that can be someone who's like throwing mad truth bombs all of the time because you're not allowing certain shadow maybe to develop a little bit more or for mm -hmm. someone to feel that they can ease into it. Like that's just as destructive sometimes. But yeah. if you're also totally unwilling to look into your own internal cave, the shadow just grows and grows and grows. So it's about having one foot in each world and being able to dip in and out that I think ultimately brings you probably the greatest balance and movement on that path of individuation right it's like a process you know the the, the notion of titration mm -hmm. right it's just like one yeah. drop at a time right one drop of shadow at a time mm -hmm. to be integrated um that's the right way to live i think is like the the struggle the work of finding the white is never over mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. no one should be fooled ever into thinking like oh shadow fully integrated um, you know, we remark on this a lot, but yeah. like we've heard people say this, yeah. it's like, Oh, I don't have a shadow. Right. I've integrated it completely. Yeah. It's like, you don't understand what it is. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's a never ending process. Yeah. Um, your unconscious is always going to be full of stuff that you can't fully bring to light. Yeah. Like, or new things are generated, you know, a new daily. relationship like right. us, certain things develop now, like a new chapter of life. It's like, you sort of feel like you can see the top of the mountain, but you never truly get there, you know, like yeah. the, it's a whole path you're walking for your entire life. And I don't know, I think reaching the peak or fully integrating is like, that's actual like transcendence. That's like death. That's, that's, right. that's the mythological enlightenment, but then you're no longer of this world Yeah. because to be of this world is to have the shadow in the cave, but also to dance in the light. Right. And it just started raining. I don't know if that's audible on the microphone. Usually these things are, but it just started raining really hard outside, which is kind of surprising. Um, but yeah, so it's important to be like the prisoner in the cave. Mm. I think it's important to free yourself mm. and to start moving towards the light very slowly. And that's like your own individual philosophical, spiritual journey is moving towards the light and that can be interpreted in all kinds of ways. Right. Mm -hmm. It's not simply intellectual propositional mm. truth. Yeah. It's not like reading Plato, mm -hmm. you know, it's not just that it's yeah. not just like reading uh, a physics textbook and understanding that kind of truth. It's like a different kind of truth, scientific mm -hmm. truth. It's not just being in touch with current events. That is again, that's one kind of truth, but it's not the full story. 
there's an embodied truth. Mm. There's a truth of self. There's sort of coming to terms in a very embodied way with who you are, feeling comfortable in your own skin, um, pursuing the truth of your life, right? Mm. Becoming a father, let's say, or giving your life away to an important cause you believe in. Like that's a truth that you have to find. Mm. But no matter what, like anything that is worth knowing or worth seeing or worth being is going to be that struggle yeah. up through the cave and it's yeah. going to be blinding and you're constantly going to be like tempted to turn around and go back down into the shadows, back down into the, the safe womb where you were before that feels like, you know, I'm okay here. I'm fine right here. I don't need to go anywhere. It's important for us to keep striving upward. And yeah. I think that's the, the real lesson of Plato's cave is keep striving upward I think also be careful about trying to drag other people with you. Probably won't work. You'll probably lose some friends if you try to drag people up through the cave. It's an individual journey, and that's the, the greatest takeaway, I think. If you find this podcast useful, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash goldenshadoworg. If you'd like to keep up to date with our projects, attend one of our live events, or work one-on-one with myself or Aaron, head to www.goldenshadow.org. Thanks for listening. See you later.